0: Hello and welcome to Fangraphs Audio episode 994. On today's show, Eric Longenhagen welcomes Emma Bacheleri, staff writer at Sports Illustrated, for an extended conversation about baseball journalism and what she's been working on. Emma tells us about sitting down with Austin Riley for an upcoming piece and the details of her process when it comes to interviewing, transcribing, and the nitty-gritty of the writing itself. Eric and Emma also talk about how cool Ron Washington is, watching Aaron Judge on TV every night, seeing O'Neal Cruz wearing the wrong jersey, and what they are looking forward to in the playoffs. The duo also discuss Emma's recent piece on the unionization of the minor leagues and how and why it all seemed to come together so fast
1: the last couple of years, we've seen some really high profile unionization campaigns outside of sports. Like in general, you know, you're talking about organizing Starbucks and Amazon and just in general, the both public awareness of union campaigns and approval of unions is higher than it's been in quite a while. And so it's hard to imagine, even though like I didn't have a lot of specific conversations of like, what were you reading in the news about what was happening with Starbucks? Like, I don't think it was at that level, but there's just a general ambient increased awareness
2: here. Yes. in the zeitgeist.
1: Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah, and we have a means now of having a covert conversation with one another and organizing large groups of people that way, like with ease. I don't have to write like a clandestine letter or I'm not trying to organize thousands of people who are in like 40 person clusters all over the country through like, a series of landline calls, which is what would have had to have been done even like 20 years ago to get a thing like this done. Like just being able to communicate with one another in this situation, like in a way that management isn't aware of and is happening with like real pace and in a way that makes the employees feel safe. Like the possibility to do that is fairly new.
0: Finally, Eric introduces the concept of Shomakase and asks Emma to share a curated list of recommended episodes from one of her favorite long-running television shows, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. But before we get to this excellent segment, I must issue my weekly reminder for you to check out the Fangraphs.com shop. Not only can you pick yourself up some official Fangraphs merch, but you can scoop up an ad-free membership, good for yourself or as a gift for a friend. It is the best way to not only browse the site, but to support the site helping us in doing everything we do at Fangraphs. It wouldn't be possible without you. Thank you. Enjoy the show.
2: Hello again, Fangraphs Audio listeners. This is lead prospect analyst Eric Longenhagen coming to you from the Kitchen Island in Tempe, Arizona. I'm joined today by... One of the handful of the more important baseball writers in the country right now. That's uh, <laughs> Emma Bachelary of Sports Illustrated. Emma, how's it going?
1: Good. Although that was exceedingly flattering of you. But uh, yeah, everything is
2: good. I think it is true. I can tell you why I think it's true. It involves me naming the other people who I group into that. Not everyone like does the same type of work who is in that group. Like You have your Pass in Rosenthal, like News breaking types. But as far as like, yeah, people doing work like you're doing right now, it is appointment reading for me. I don't know. What's going on? You had a a day of, of work before we hopped on. I had a day of work before we hopped on to record. What is it that you have in the oven right now?
1: Yes, I am doing a profile of Austin Riley that... Should be out by the time this podcast goes up. Uh, if it's not, I've really messed up in my ability to, to, to finish my edits in a timely manner. But yeah, that was that was fun because I got to focus a lot actually on his defense. We've seen so much written about, you know, the offensive adjustments he's made over the last couple of years. But because I looked more at his defense for this, because he had more to say about that and what his journey has been like to improve there and to, to stick at third base long term, I got to talk to Ron Washington for... A long time, which was great because he's just one of my favorite conversations in baseball.
2: Yeah, I can't imagine that he'd be anything other than one of the best. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's interesting. Austin Riley's one of those guys where, yeah, when he was a prospect, it was just like, eh, I really don't know if this is going to work, if this, you know, just defensively over at third base. And it's funny because a handful of those guys just during the course of my lifetime like doing this job who have like had question marks. Some of them have not only stayed at third base, but some of them like became really good. Like Nolan Arenado at one point was not a lock to stay at third base, which feels insane now. Yes. But yeah, Austin Riley's one of those guys. And of course it's like Ron Washington ends up there, just this other random series of events occurs. And some of it has to do with Austin Riley himself, I'm sure. How about, how like do you go about deciding that that was the thing that you wanted to do? Like what is the process for you logistically to have the idea and then bring that to like make it reality
1: yeah so this one was one that i i went into pretty open-minded like you know i just pitched my editors not long after he signed that extension of you know okay we haven't really done a big Braves story this year which you know it's kind of natural as you're looking ahead to the playoffs to do something on the team that won it all last year and so With as many extensions as they've done, like it seems kind of natural to do something on the guy who has signed the biggest one that will last the longest. And so didn't really have any like hard and fast parameters on what the story was going to be. I just, you know, he graciously agreed to meet up at a a Starbucks so we could like sit away from the park and like talk for a while. And I just wanted to see kind of where he would take the conversation. And so, you know, some stuff about just what it means to sign an extension like this in general and how you feel think of it, like how you even conceive of what does 10 years look like, 10 years of your life? And like, how do you judge the difference between $212 million and, you know, $190 million? Like, to me, those numbers are both just insane. like, I I don't think I could, it's really hard to imagine the difference between nine years of my life versus 10 years of my life. And, you know, X dollars versus Y dollars, the same was kind of true for him, which I I think is probably true for anyone. And yeah, so then just in talking about his evolution as a player, you know, there's already, quite a bit out there about some of the changes he's made with his swing and just his mental approach at the plate you know after struggling in 2019 and kind of in 2020 as well like what it took to get him to have the season he did last year and has continued to have this year so i was like okay i think you know you've already talked about this before maybe you want to talk about defense instead and he had a lot to say so it worked out really well
2: do you have like a recording software and you're getting audio of the interview the whole time or are you like taking handwritten notes
1: I record on my phone. I used to have like an actual recorder that I brought with me separate from my phone because I was like really paranoid about trusting my phone to do it, I guess. And I just thought like a recorder was better, but over the last couple of years, I've gotten lazy about bringing separate equipment. So I just bring my phone, record it on voice memos, but try to take notes as well at the same time, because I find it makes me a better listener. Like it's easier for me to, I mean, I'm sure some people don't have this problem, but for me, I can find myself like, just having a, a baseline conversation where I'm not like actively engaged in what they're saying on a level where I am thinking about, like, okay, what makes sense to follow up in here? What's a detail that I want to ask about more? What's something that feels like it might have a story behind it? It's easy for me not to think about those things if I'm not also actively taking notes while the recorder is running. And instead, I just fall into like conversational person mode of just like, oh, yeah, like that's nice. And like the next question on my list is, and so to keep myself like thinking about how am I going to frame this in a story and get good information and be an actual good reporter here. I have to also take notes while I have the recorder going.
2: Yeah. There's something about writing it out that for whatever reason is, is helpful for, for me as well. Like there are lots of scouts now who even I was at the Diamondbacks game last week and a bunch of the scouts, I would say much more than 50% of the scouts now are just using some sort of tablet to take their notes. And a lot of them, it seems, I'm not looking over all your shoulders, folks, but some of them, (laughs) a lot of them are taking notes seemingly directly in their team's system. So there's not like a transcription of their report that occurs later from like paper or from something you know that is just what they are using and then into the team system where they're like filing reports. I do know some people who do it that way, but some of them are just like zooming in on a small, you know, like lined paragraph section to fill in comments and then like zooming out and like, you know, they have drop downs for different stuff sometimes, tool grades or like physical descriptors and things like that. And so there was a time when I thought, okay, well, I'll just do this directly into the board. I can literally Mm -hmm. update the board live from like my seat at the ballpark when I'm watching a player during, you know, fall league or whatever and make it real on the site. Live, then I like did that for a couple of weeks during fall league or whatever, and did a radio hit or a podcast I can't remember which. And I had no recall, like, <laughs> yeah. my ability to just know very specific things off the top of my head about the individual players I was being asked about had kind of gone away because I just engaged with that one time, it had been made manifest on the website, and so like it was almost in one ear and out the other. F- for me. And so now I'm like still pen and paper and then coming home and like doing things again, like a second time, basically. It's just like sort of helping things stick to my noggin. And then, so you start to sit down to write. How is it that the the audio becomes written words in like, you know, a Google doc?
1: This is a good one to ask that question about, because in, in this case, I wrote about 1500 words and realized like, this is completely wrong. Like the structure doesn't make sense. Like all of it goes into the garbage and, and start again. So in an ideal world, it would just be, you know, I transcribe, I like to transcribe all of my interviews first and kind of going off what you were just saying, when I have the luxury of time, when I'm not on a super tight deadline, I like to transcribe everything manually rather than running it through a transcription service, just because actually listening to the entire thing again and having to type it out really helps me figure out here were the best quotes. Like here is something I've picked up in how someone said something that sometimes it can be easy to forget or to miss when you're just looking at a written transcription. If you ran it through an auto transcriber of like, oh, like there was some hesitation in his voice, or you can like hear the smile in his voice as he's saying it, like hearing all of that again, I find is helpful. So do all the transcriptions, try to pick out the like specific moments or quotes or bits of information that are going to be most important, then I'm someone who really likes a good detailed outline and struggles to write without one. So then I, I do that. And then ideally, like I can just write off of that outline with the quotes and the transcriptions. Sometimes, like today, I, I start and realize mm, this outline is not working. This is not the best way to tell this story and have to figure out something more structurally sound or just to like better from a, a writing perspective, like a, a craft and quality of prose and clarity and all of that. And sometimes just better from a like, okay, communicating this information in a way that flows and is logical and is like covering all the bases of the reporting. Sometimes it's more of that uh, like technical stuff rather than the like, artsier writing stuff in terms of getting an outline that works and, and flows in the right way. And um, yeah, and then I turn it in, hopefully. So <laughs> that's it.
2: I've always been like more it's almost like the difference between cooking and baking where ideally the the very prolific writers there's not really there's there's not really a way of selecting for writers <laughs> and we don't have like you know there's no data on the way we did like if i turned in a paper in college and it was just grammatically fine and the writing was fine like it is going to do well in that environment but like you can't get a clean cleanly written B when your story like isn't that interesting with no structure like in the real world you know (laughs) so I am more of like the baker type where yeah like I find sometimes scrapping whole huge chunks of a thing rather than the very prolific writerly types who just vomit up things very quickly and then they like move things around and they season and change this and they feel like a comfort in doing that bits at a time that I do not Feel.
1: yeah i don't know if this is a similar thing for you but for me i guess i'm too self-conscious or neurotic about i can't let myself just do that entire like oh, i've just put everything out on the page and now that all of it's out there i'll go back and figure out what needs to be fixed or changed or deleted entirely like i edit too much in my head as i'm writing to yes. yeah like i just have the, the voice in my head is too loud to let myself just turn it off and just Put it all out there. Like it can only go so far before I'm like, oh no no no! Like this is not working on the page, and you need to fix it right now.
2: Right. Yes. Your brain is moving faster than your fingers, and this is the the situation that it's like a, it's a Mexican standoff, really, between how fast your fingers can can write and how quickly your brain can realize that, that what you just wrote isn't good enough. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, all these scouting reports are built, you know, a couple chunks at a time, where you want to like touch on the guys history especially like if there's injury or something you know interesting regarding his career narrative but you don't want to do it with the same sequence every time like this guy went to this high school in this state and was highly you know went to this college like you got to try to mix it up and make it feel organic and not so monochromatic report to report and so like you have to your brain can't be on autopilot for that part of it and it demands yeah that like you ended up doing this three, four sentences at a time for a guy who you're going to write like 600 words about. All right. So Austin Riley. Cool. Yeah. Like over here at the the Southwest Desert Compound, it's, it's instructs time. I've been doing a lot of spreadsheet work. I haven't like published anything in a while, just like building a foundation for off season list stuff with data that I've sourced. Kylie has sourced some of this. He and I have been like kibitzing in a, in a Google doc together here for the last I don't know, like week and a half. I'm going to update the 100 here soon based on some of like, we have a whole full season worth of data now. And so invariably, as we're working through stuff like this, questions that you wouldn't think you'd have to answer, they're like very weirdly specific to some of the stuff we're trying to do, like all of a sudden you have a whole season's worth of data for all the minor leagues. And like Danny Zips is helping us out and Ben Clemens is helping us out. Try to pull some of this data together from the big leagues to create like baselines basically for the prospects to say, all right, well, you know, the catchers in the big leagues tend to perform like this in these stat casty ways behind the scenes. And so like the minor league data that we have indicates that, like, wow, Bo Naylor Bo Naylor is just going to like be the Everyday Guardians catcher next year and like maybe be like a Rookie of the Year candidate next year. You know, like this guy's ability to control the zone and hit for power for a catcher is like actually when you really look at this is like pretty exceptional. So all that stuff will just like eventually get squeezed out of the toothpaste tube of the prospect lists. And that's sort of what I've been going on. So
1: for something, yeah, like that, how do you balance what, I mean, there's so much like hard data and like both the numbers you actually have for minor league stats and what you know about how to interpret them. And then you have the conversations you've had and what you've seen with your own eyes. Like I realize this is a much bigger conceptual question about how to evaluate prospects and how to do the kind of work you do, but how do you balance how much of that? Like when you're in this stage where you're in the spreadsheets and it's been a while, how do you know how heavily to weight each of the the pools of information you have access to when you're trying to figure out what to do with it?
2: Yeah, it's really hard, and the thing that—obviously, they're the two ends of the spectrum. Like You have the guys who have basically shown you for their whole life that they are good at at this, right? Jose Miranda and Steven Kwan and Ty France— And guys who like they are just performing and have done it their whole lives, including into the upper levels of the minor leagues. And there's not, you know, like an underlying statistical red flag. There's not like anything. There's no reason to doubt them. And then you have the ones who are like five years away from having laid a performance track record that's anything like that. And then the hard part for me is figuring out when... They are transitioning from one end of that spectrum to the other enough that I want to buy it in a huge, huge way. So like Jackson Churio of the Brewers. I've seen a lot of Jackson Churio. I've seen a lot of 16 and 17 year old Jackson Churio. And then I saw like five games worth of Jackson Churio this spring during minor league spring training. If you would have told me at the end of the year that he would have like on paper seven power, I would have told you that's totally crazy that, you know, I get it that six months of physical development for an 18 year old is a significant thing but for like scouts to be telling me that if this guy were just a draft eligible high schooler he would be a slam dunk number one pick and that he has like elite bat speed and has gone from you know contact oriented guy to huge power with like some scary swing and miss stuff underlying even though it's not obvious like in his triple slash line really I would like said that's that's totally different than the player I saw in February. So knowing that what I saw with my eyes, because the huge chunks of evaluation in person come, minor league spring training, and then again during instructs, because everyone's here for minor league spring training. Mm -hmm. And you're just seeing as many players as you can over the course of like six weeks, day after day. And then during instructs, it's a select group. And so you know that the org thinks that they are good or they wouldn't be there for instructs. Right. So yeah, like... Some of it is building a visual Rolodex in your head over time so that when I see Jackson Turio swing a bat, even if it's on video now, I know like, holy crap, that's way different than almost everybody else. He is swinging so hard and that can help me buy in to what he's doing statistically or in the case of like the Cubs have a shortstop prospect who spent all year here named Christian Hernandez and he was a huge bonus guy. His strikeout rate, here on the complex was like kind of scary. He was striking out like 35, 40% of the time early on, but also like he swings like that Mm -hmm. where you watch this guy and you say, holy crap, this is way different. This is, you know, a no doubt shortstop who has huge physical projection who already swings like this. I kind of don't care. I mean, I'm not gonna like rank this guy fifth overall or anything like that, but I don't care that he even if he strikes out 35% of the time in the big leagues, a guy who can play defense like that at short and hit for huge power is like a four-win player still. Right. So fine. So, you know, some of it is just a combination. It's case to case where sometimes I just need to I can look at what Stephen Kwan did on paper and just be like, this guy's great. Like he just cuz he's 5'9" and weighs a buck 65, like who cares? He's awesome. He doesn't swing and miss ever. Like, let's buy into this in a big way. And then for some of the guys, like, it is still just about, look at this guy do the things with his body on a baseball field that he's doing. This isn't normal. It could be huge, and the chance that it could be huge is just enough to say, like, O'Neal Cruz, I don't care that you, you know, are swinging at literally everything. You wore the wrong jersey to the field today, (laughs) which literally happened. Like, I've seen him in other players' jerseys from the same team because, like, O'Neal didn't bring his row jersey.
1: And he's one it would really stand out on when you're that big, I imagine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: I forget who it was, but he had like one of the Pirates pitcher's jerseys on one fall league game. I, I was just like, what? Why is he wearing, you know, I, I don't even remember who it was, like the lefty reliever who is good command. I forget what that guy's name is. He hasn't gotten there yet, but I still think he will. But yeah, I was just like, what? what's going on? And they were like, yeah, O'Neil didn't bring his, he just forgot to bring his jersey. <laughs> All right, so. What I wanted to bring you on to talk about specifically is your most recent piece on Sports Illustrated, which folks can go to, like, find Emma's author page on the Sports Illustrated website, see all her work there. The Austin Riley one will probably be up by the time you're listening to this, but your other most recent one is about the unionization of the minors, and it sort of peels back the curtain on some of what was going on in the background among the minor league players as the unionization was occurring over the course of like, I don't know, the better part of this of this year really, and stewing in people's minds for even longer than that. Uh, do you have like a synopsis that you'd like to offer beyond that?
1: Yeah. So basically it was just from the outside, this seemed like it happened incredibly fast. I mean, I know for me, just seeing it happen, it was like, oh, I would kind of heard whispers, maybe something eventually was going to get worked on for a, a minor league union, but I was really surprised when the news broke that, you know, they'd sent out union cards on a, a Sunday at the end of August, and then it just, it moved so fast from there. It was 17 days from the time cards went out to the time that the union was voluntarily recognized by MLB and then, you know, affirmed by a, an independent arbitrator, which is like incredibly fast to, to go from you know something that would have seemed kind of just unfathomable i think for for me to think about just a few years ago like that didn't seem like something they'd ever be able to pull off and to not just have uh gotten the support among players to have a base that that made sense to work with to be able to get this off the ground but then to have the sort of campaign where mlb decided they wanted to recognize it voluntarily it was just like really stunning so i i wanted to learn more about how it happened and and why and you know as you said it was a a lot longer and a lot more behind the scenes than we got in those 17 days in late august and early september here it was just you know something that we've seen so much traction here in the last couple of years really with you know all of the work that advocates for minor leaguers has done a lot of areas that the, the league has responded in in terms of housing for minor leaguers and there were some pay increases like it was clear that the the league was starting to reckon with the fact that i mean Players were in a lot of cases deeply pissed off and had, you know, decided that it was worth speaking out about their conditions. And they had people who wanted to help them with that, like advocates for minor leaguers and the people who were doing that kind of advocacy work to try to raise the profile here. And so, yeah, you just had kind of like the groundwork laid over the last couple of years with increasing player frustration and increasing player comfort with speaking out and saying something and trying to get change here. And finally, over the course of this year, you had a a small group of guys who, starting in spring training, were talking to the players in their clubhouse, talking to all of their friends, talking to people they knew in other orgs that they'd played with before of just like, this is what this would mean. This is why we believe this is the time to do it. And let's unionize And then they did.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. And you touch on the things about the story that are most interesting to me, which is that, like, look, minor leaguers have been treated poorly forever, right? This isn't a new thing. These aren't like new circumstances that minor league baseball players are having to deal with. And so it is interesting that like externalities, things about our culture that led to greater public awareness of like the plight of these guys and like the outrage that stems from that, Major League Baseball's exposure through the internet to that outrage, like there are just things independent of the situation itself that seem to bring all of this about. Is there anything else happening here that like made this time the right time that seemed to make all of the players agreeable to a change like this even though i think joe hudson has a quote in the story that says that like there was an education curve to overcome with regard to like players and the idea of unionization
1: yeah that was something a couple of guys brought up that you know okay you have like a a small group of guys who are super on board who might have just been generally more predisposed to unions for whatever reason like maybe family background political background whatever you also have any guy that's been called up to the big leagues like has a sense of what the MLBPA can do beyond what you know a minor leaguer who hasn't had that experience might so you have that part of it but then yeah you would have a lot of guys who i think just didn't know what it would mean and of course with the minors you're working with so many guys i mean thousands of guys who have totally different personal backgrounds, come from different countries, you have a language barrier, all of that. So it's just a lot of different personal experiences coming to the table here. So you, of course, in that huge group, have a lot of guys who didn't really know what it would mean, who, you know, I think, of course, if you're someone who's just doing whatever you can to try to make it to the big league someday, you're, you know, probably reasonably scared of, well, what would it mean to sign my name on something? Like, I don't want to get singled out. I don't want to speak up. I don't want to... You know be the guy who's seen as someone who complained and then suddenly I, i'm released or you know i'm not like fast-tracked for a promotion to the next level like it, it makes sense that there's just some kind of natural fear of of what it means to be part of an organizing campaign like this and you know i don't think that's particular to to the minors here i think when you talk about organizing right. campaigns like across i mean not just sports like labor in general it's a very common fear and thing that. You have to overcome if you're an organizer and having those conversations about like this is what it means if you know like it sounds kind of cheesy but if you're standing together if it's their strength in numbers and if all of you are doing this you don't have to worry about any one person being singled out. And so I think that was a big one. And also like the last couple of years, we've seen some really high profile unionization campaigns outside of sports. Like in general, you know, you're talking about organizing Starbucks and Amazon and just in general, the both public awareness of union campaigns and approval of unions is higher than it's been in quite a while. And so it's hard to imagine, even though like I didn't have a lot of specific conversations of like, what were you reading in the news about what was happening with Starbucks? Like, I don't think it was at that level, but there's just a general ambient increased
2: awareness here. Yes. in the zeitgeist.
1: Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah, and we have a means now of having a covert conversation with one another and organizing large groups of people that way, like with ease. I don't have to write like a clandestine letter or I'm not trying to organize thousands of people who are in like 40 person clusters all over the country through like a series of landline calls, which is what would have had to have been done even like 20 years ago to get a thing like this done. Like just being able to communicate with one another in this situation, like in a way that management isn't aware of and is happening with like real pace and in a way that makes the employees feel safe, like the possibility to do that is fairly new. So yeah, like super, super interesting, like cultural moment more broadly and yeah, like here it is coming for for baseball, more specifically, really, really cool. What is the next series of events we should be sensitive to, like in this realm? What is what is like the next? How is the story going to continue to play out?
1: Yeah. So the next thing for them now that they've been recognized is negotiating their first CBA, which you know, even though they're being represented by the MLBPA, the minors are their own bargaining unit, which means like they're starting completely from scratch here, which I I think is really exciting for a lot of the players in leadership, just because, you know, obviously you don't get everything you want in negotiating, but you get to really set your own, chart chart your own course with what you're interested in here. Like, they really have an opportunity to kind of figure out, like, what do they want the minor leagues to look like? And then, of course, there then will be what might be a lengthy back and forth with MLB about what that actually ends up looking like. But the fact that they get to sit down and establish their priorities, decide what's most important to them here, I think is really exciting for a lot of these guys. And I'm really interested to see where it goes. That, you know, of course, for a lot of players, like the biggest thing is salary and like everything kind of flows from that. Like it's, if players are being paid more, it's not so important to make sure that you're getting a second meal at the ballpark every day, because if you can afford your own meals, like it, it doesn't really matter if the club is giving you a second peanut butter and jelly sandwich or whatever, everything kind of flows out from salary, but there's so much that goes into just conditions what it means to be treated with the kind of respect that they want to see for players. Like it's a lot more than just money I think for them and so figuring out what they want to set as their priorities and what these negotiations for a first CBA look like I think will be really interesting in the months to come.
2: Yeah. And if if there's any alteration to like the number of minor league roster spots available throughout an organization, let's hope that there's like wiggle room. It will result in the teams like the Dodgers who like seem to genuinely pump resources into player development. You know, we'll just like leverage however many roster spots they can. The fact that, you know, there might, the response to this on the major league side might be to like further reduce the number of minor league players a team is allowed. So we'll have to see what happens, but fingers crossed that that's not the case. Like it doesn't... The ROI, which is how teams are going to be thinking about this, on a guy who ends up becoming like even a, a marginally successful big leaguer, It's pretty high, you know? Yeah, but that was also true of the draft. You know, all you really need is one guy from day three to become a big leaguer for your entire day three's worth of bonuses to have been worth it. And yet we have, you know, saw the draft slash in, in half. So obviously there's more going into it than like a simple like surplus value calc of a middle reliever who was given a senior signs bonus in the third round right but yeah it seemed pretty fundamental to me that like having as many opportunities to grow and develop good big leaguers would behoove the teams but they haven't behaved that way
1: yeah it's i mean the example you gave actually of like a potential future middle reliever one of the guys i talked to for the story Josh Hedzka in the the Mets system is in double a right now and this was the example he gave that he was undrafted so no signing bonus smart guy went to johns hopkins and was like if i make it to the big leagues for like a few weeks and provide a fraction of value like if you're looking at the fact that you know one win above replacement is worth you know what nine million dollars on the free agent market if i can be worth like a third of that for just one year like the return on investment is obvious like you it, and that's just one guy that like if you're extrapolating that across an entire organization, even when you're talking about hundreds of players, like the opportunity with what the value of, of a win is of what just one guy who might have otherwise, you know, not had a chance to develop into a player or might have even left the minors altogether because he, he felt he couldn't live the lifestyle anymore if you have one or two guys who are breaking through in a way that they wouldn't have otherwise in a sense they're paying for the entire you're getting a return on in investment for the entire thing so that's something like that they are extremely aware of that you know players talked about themselves and uh yeah it, it it's interesting to me that obviously they're, it's more complicated than that clubs have other things that they're weighing there and considering you know more straightforward than just those specific numbers on a, a balance sheet or whatever but yeah like players are certainly aware of that that like If just a few of us who didn't have big signing bonuses pay off in a way that we couldn't have otherwise done before, like the value of this investment is is clear here. It's not just about, you know, what we think is the right thing to do or wanting to be treated with more respect or dignity. Although for a lot of them, of course, it is that it's also just like they believe this makes baseball sense. And I think in a lot of ways it really does.
2: Yeah, I agree. And Hedgka is like a, he's like a low slot. Submarine type guy, mid '80s. Slider's got a lot of length. He's got a shot. He's one of those, you know, low slot bit pitchers. Fingers crossed for that guy. It's fun, you know. It's fun to watch him do his thing because he's got like a super duper, like knuckle scraping Taylor Rogers kind of delivery.
1: And he wears Rex specs, so the whole Does he has he? the yeah. He looks the part of a of a reliever with oh, a funky delivery. Yeah.
2: The Ziegler, the Ziegler archetype. <laughs> so. How much baseball have you been just sitting at home watching lately? What's on your TV in the evenings when you're just kind of putting on a game?
1: I have exclusively been watching uh, for Aaron Judge over what feels like forever now. It's been about a week, but it feels like this yeah. is all I have been watching. Is And to their credit, the, as we've been waiting for home run, you know, 61 and beyond, these have been some really fun games the Yankees have played, which makes it all the funnier to me that people are frustrated that they haven't seen the one specific dinger they're looking for. Because yeah, we've had like two extra innings games, lots of close games and just no Aaron Judge home run. But that is uh, all I have been watching lately.
2: Yeah. And like they're playing the Blue Jays who need every game. And yeah, like that's been dominating my TV as well. It's appointment viewing just to watch this guy try to do his thing. I got put to bed before McGuire broke the record. I was like all over the Sosa McGuire race in 98 i was 10 years old and so it was a huge huge deal to me and yet like the night mcguire broke the record against the cubs like i got taken to bed like all right buddy like i don't think he's gonna come up again like let's go to bed so i didn't see that one so now i'm like i've got to see this one have also been watching obviously like things in the al wild card situation play out although you know the way things have have just shaken out, it hasn't been a very interesting stretch run in terms of like drama surrounding the, the postseason spots.
1: Yeah, really other than the NL East, it's like there's just nothing that's uh that intriguing to really watch out for here in a way that makes me want to feel like, oh, this last week really means something. Which is kind of a bummer, but you know.
2: Yeah, we would need one of the AL East teams to really fall off. We would need Tampa or Toronto or I guess maybe Seattle to like really lay an egg here the last several days while Baltimore gets hot. And that's like the only real opportunity. And I guess the bottom of the NL wildcard situation is still not settled either, but neither team is none of those three teams is like grabbing hold of anything really. Like they're all kind of limping to the finish a little bit. Yeah. If you had to cluster like a a couple teams here who you think are clearly at the very head of the pack should be, the collective favorites for like making a a deep deep run the elite handful of teams who would you point toward?
1: It feels so boring and I feel like I have given a variation of this answer for like gosh like three or four years now, but it really is hard for me to you know I wouldn't be shocked if someone manages to beat the Dodgers. It's obviously possible, sure. but it's just the Dodgers and the Astros it is so hard to pick against them right now like it just it's all there and um you know i I think obviously the Yankees have put things back together both the Braves and the Mets, I can see whichever one ends up coming out of the East there or even whichever one ends up in the wild card. Those are obviously, you know, two great teams that I, I think
2: can really go far. But um,
1: yeah, it's just like if I have to do Astros and Dodgers versus the field, I, like I, I don't think I have a reason to take the field.
2: Yeah, I'm with you. And yeah, like that's how it always is. Of course, like if the Whitehawks were gifted a playoff spot, all it would take is Dylan Cease having, like, a couple of good starts for them to make a real series out of it or whatever. Like, any of those teams, Philly, San Diego, whatever, they could absolutely beat the Dodgers in a series or, you know, the, the Braves in a series. So, uh, but I'm with you. Like, it is ridiculous to think about. Houston? Houston is... When they pare down their rotation, like, Jose Urquidy might not make their playoff rotation. Luis Garcia or Lance McCullers, like, these are the dudes... Lance McCullers was pitching in decisive World Series games a couple of years ago. Right. And now he's, like, on the chopping block of their postseason rotation because their rotation is just so good and deep. Like, that's kind of incredible. So, I think those two teams are absolutely there. But I still think Atlanta... I think what Atlanta did by adding to the back of their bullpen, like... Having Raycell Iglesias as your setup man—that's pretty dirty. And then who knows? Tyler Glass now look pretty good today, and like the Rays generally have started to get healthy, and so maybe they're dangerous. And and I think Cleveland's bullpen shortens a game in a way that like makes them super dangerous. But, but yeah, I think those are the two teams.
1: Yeah, with Cleveland's bullpen in particular, the format of the playoffs, I think this year is, you know, I haven't thought that much about yet of what it'll be like to have having to make it through that first round, potentially without a day off, depending on what your league you're in. For a team like Cleveland, I think that can really work in their favor of like, if you have that bullpen depth, if you have guys who are comfortable going multiple innings the way they do. That's actually, I guess, if I have to do one like sneaky pick, I, I feel like the format
2: change this year suits a team like them. Yeah, even, even, like, after Bieber and McKenzie, McKenzie's been up and down, and right now he's been, like, he's really going good right now. But even, like, to have Quantrill, and we'll see how act looks, I think he's supposed to start this weekend. But like, Cody Morris. Cody Morris, it wouldn't surprise me if someone like Cody Morris or, like, Savali or even Cal Quantrill, they go out there and they give you, like, three kind of inefficient innings, but they escape four innings, you know, something in there. And then you need to have a bridge between your starter and your, you know, King Ghidorah bullpen of Classe and Karinczak and Stepan or whatever. But, like, they just have that. Like, they just have De Los Santos and Sandlin. And, like, either of those guys could give you... Eli Morgan, just come in and throw his changeup a million times and, like, get you through six outs. Like absolutely could could be able to do that. So yeah, I think, I think Cleveland and then Cleveland's, Cleveland's guys, like the hitters are the types of one, they're types of hitters who it doesn't matter how nasty your stuff is. Like the concentration of stuff in the playoffs is just going to be much better than you would typically see over the course of the regular season for like a number of reasons. Right? right. So like the best teams are there and there's rest, like you mentioned, baked into the whole equation that there wasn't before. And so you're not dealing with 30 teams Best fifteen-ish pitchers because of injuries and up-down relief types and all that stuff. Like you're just dealing with the top ten other teams, best guys on full rest. But like Stephen Kwan just doesn't swing and miss. Like it doesn't matter. Right. Tyler Freeman and Ahmed am Res- like these guys just find a way to put the bat head on the ball. Jose Ramirez can take anybody deep at any time from either side of the plate. Like the depth of their lineup. I, I don't believe in Oscar Gonzalez or anything like that. Like I'm not that crazy, but. <laughs> I still think Oscar Gonzalez at some point is going to turn into a pumpkin who walks like two percent of the time because that's what he's been his whole life. So that's but that's my perspective on that. But yeah, like I just think Cleveland's super dangerous. Is there anybody else who you think is like lurking in the weeds here who might jump up and and bite someone like in the NL? Wheeler, you get a good Wheeler and Nola start back to back.
1: Yeah, which is weird because I just felt like I didn't think about the Phillies for the longest time, and then was like, oh yeah, you you really kind of have to.
2: They're the one where top to bottom, like, they're 7-8. that They can, like, if Castellanos is going, if Segura is going, like, that whole group top to bottom is one where you can't relax at any point in the lineup. And, yeah, like, just the, those two starters that they have at the very beginning, like, they can just keep you in or win you any game. The Phillies bullpen has always been not great, but they've moved Sundergaard there, so they have that bridge guy now. And then if Dominguez and Alvarado are throwing strikes, like their stuff is as good as anybody's too. Yeah, like it's not as ironclad a case, but they're they're okay.
1: I mean, I think really just the fact that it it takes so little, like you know, it is certainly within the realm of possibility that they string together enough to constitute two good series, and then suddenly like that's a run. Like there's enough there to make that not impossible, certainly.
2: How about for next year? Is there anyone who's played well down the stretch, has a bunch of young guys coming up who you think will be towards like the back of the, the postseason mix a year from now, like next year's Baltimore or last year's Seattle?
1: I feel like it's almost a cop out to, to go with Baltimore because it like what they did this year was made them such an obvious choice there. But I really am excited to watch them next year with a full year of all of this young talent and just to see them given more time to to come together. And, you know, obviously it's really hard in that division. You know, I'm not sure, especially if you end up looking at a somewhat more competitive Red Sox team, which is a a low bar given what happened to them this year. That's obviously a tough environment to make more noise in. But I, if I have to pick one that I'm excited for watching next year after not making the playoffs this year, I think it's the Orioles.
2: Yeah, especially with who knows when Grayson Rodriguez, they will, you know, deem him Ready? I actually haven't checked to see how he's been since he's come back, since it seemed unlikely that they were going to shoot him right into the big leagues coming off of that injury. Arizona's look good down the stretch here. I don't know if they're going to trade one of these young outfielders this offseason, the group of Varsho, McCarthy, Carroll, and Thomas. You know, Thomas looked fine early on. He's barely 22. He's struggling from some of the same stuff that C.J. Abrams has Where there's, he's just like kind of swinging at everything, and the quality of his contact has not been great as a result. While all the other three guys have really, really played well, a bunch of that young pitching started to arrive. Ryan Nelson, who's hurt now, but started the year with his velo down, came on in the middle of the year, was like averaging 95, and then had, I think it's a scap injury. They've got Brandon Fott. Ph fought uh, from Bellerman, like coming out of like, a school, small school in Louisville. So Dre Jamison's up. Like I think Arizona might be sneaky next year. Who's the other one that was interesting? There's one other one that caught my eye. Still kind of waiting for Miami. Oh, Texas. Yeah, I know. Like te- Texas has just been slowly. They accumulated a ton of depth a couple trade deadlines ago. A bunch of the prospects are starting to arrive. Josh Young. We should see Owen White. Mason Englert had a great year. Should be added to the 40-man. Cole Wynn had a not-so-great year, but you know, historically he's been a good mid-rotation pitching prospect who's also like his 40-man timeline, it's here. So... You know, Seeger and Semyon and tow for the long haul. Jonah Heim had a breakout year. John Gray had a good year. That looks like that, that's going to be a good free agent signing, etc. Like, I still think Texas is slowly kind of starting to bring it here. But that division is going to be tough, I guess. I mean, I think Seattle's here to stay. Houston's, Houston yeah. certainly is. And then who the hell knows with Anaheim and, and Oakland will probably be a while yet. So, all right, let's do some ridiculousness here to close out the show. When we were at the All-Star break together and, I don't know, I was a couple extremely light Korean beers in <laughs> to like, I don't even remember what night that was, but it was post some all star festivity. We were out in Koreatown with a group of other folks. And I mentioned to you this thing that I had sort of come up with. It's not like I invented, I just invented a term for it that I call shomakase, right? So omakase is like a chef select dinner. Where like, you know, you go to like a sushi restaurant or whatever. It's a Japanese phrase for it. You know, prefixes is, is another way of saying it, right? Where like, you don't really pick anything from a menu. You get like a six-course meal that the chef decides on. And each dish like comes out in order with, you know, your whoever else is eating with you, hopefully. And uh, like, you don't decide anything that night. Like everything is sort of done for you. You get like this big multi-course meal of like small little bites. Uh, And it's called omakase. So my idea is, and Emma knows this already, I'm explaining for the benefit of the listener. This idea of shomakase is, there are some TV shows, like there's only so much culture that you have time to experience. And as we continue to get like longer in the tooth as a civilization that produces culture, like you only have so much time to consume the things that are worthwhile to consume. At some point, there will just be too many good movies, worthwhile movies for like you to cram into your whole life and and TV shows and like music to listen to, etc. So it would be good if for some of, especially these TV shows, like some of that to be curated for you. So... Omakase, makase, show makase. And this is especially true in the TV shows that don't have like a through line narrative where it's not important to watch each episode one right after another because the story is important, like in The Wire or The Sopranos or something like that, where like the story is a huge part of the show. But for something like right. the Twilight Zone or The Simpsons, there are just so many episodes Someone with like a museum curator's knowledge and passion for The Twilight Zone should pick like 12 of the best episodes of The Twilight Zone for you to watch so that you can experience peak Rod Serling and then be done, okay? And this like idea stemmed from me having like a come to Jesus moment about how many days I have spent watching the British baking show. Like Ooh. I've spent probably like three, just from watching every episode once, it's like three days worth of hours of nice British people baking with one another. And I know like we can have a broader conversation about that's okay, Eric, like that's fine to do, <laughs> but we're not going to have that conversation now. So I pose a question to you like, what is a show that you feel that level of comfort and mastery over and like passion and care for? That you would care to like show Macasse for our listeners.
1: First of all, I love the language you're using here. Like the care and curatorial aspect of it is just so makes it sound so lovely. Whereas, like I was just thinking of like, ah, oh, like what is the garbage I pour into my brain on a daily basis, and how can I regurgitate it for these lovely listeners? You you make it sound so nice. I did have a couple of someone here. someone
2: cared about it. Someone loved it.
1: <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I had a couple of choices here. I think the show on balance I watch the most is Frasier because it comes on every single night on the Hallmark channel. And also for a while it was in the Nick at Night block. And I am someone who stays up extremely late. I like, I'm naturally kind of an insomniac. And I also like my work habits are bad in terms of meeting deadlines and working in a timely manner if I'm not like physically at the ballpark. So I stay up late a lot. I watch a lot of Frasier,
2: I got bad news for you. You're going to start paying for that physically at some point, but continue. Yeah,
1: (laughs) I know. Okay. Not to good on a tangent too much, but people have been saying that through, I'm now, I'm 27, I'm about to turn 28. And people have been saying that to me for years now. I think I just am genuinely better suited to be not fully nocturnal. Like there have been times where I've lived on a nocturnal schedule for like a week or so and you know it is hard to do long term. But I just think I'm someone who like my entire body clock has shifted like six hours past what society would like it to be. And I wish the world was more accommodating for that. But I I did find the one job that really does kind of uh, cater to it by having to write about baseball. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Anyways, I I thought about Fraser, But I felt like even though it is the show I have logged the most hours with the, the lovely thing about Fraser is to me like yes, some episodes are better than others. I could do a curatorial thing here. Frasier has such a narrow. The standard deviation of Frasier episodes is very, very small. They all exist in the same band. So instead, I chose a show that is not one that is just like background noise for me, but one that I rewatch frequently out of like joy and making a conscious choice to watch it, not just what is on at 2 a.m., which is It's Always Mm -hmm. Sunning in Philadelphia, which I think also fits this because it has, there are no connective plots throughout one episode to the next. Like there are some recurring things, but. Each episode works as a standalone. A ton of episodes. I feel like people don't realize like how long the show has been on. Like, you know, we're 15 seasons now. There is a lot of Always Sunny to choose from. And so I have seven episodes here. Are you an Always Sunny head, Eric, former Pennsylvanian?
2: This is where this concept of doing this is perfect because yes and no, I like this show very much. I have not, like this show has made me laugh Harder than most shows, but I've only seen probably those first three seasons in totality and then bits and pieces as the rest of them have kind of come out and like very, very few more recently. But when it first came out, it was a huge deal. I was still living in, I hadn't even graduated high school yet. This is 05, so I'm still in Catasauquas, like, you know, basically Philadelphian to some of you. (laughs) And so, yeah, like this was a huge deal. And then of course, like they got so much of the nomenclature, right? And like the tone, they captured a certain like debauched nature that was very endearing to me and my group of friends. And my friend Dominic had like the first season DVD, right? DVDs. And we passed that around like the group of us and were just aghast that the material basically like it was so the characters were so nihilistic yeah and it was uncut with anything else and we just found it super hilarious
1: (laughs) yeah that was i was kind of similar i loved it in high school I then had like a period right after college where I had a lot of free time where I ended up like coming back to it and realizing like, Oh, like this show, even though it was going on for years while I wasn't paying attention is like still really good and enjoyable. And then I had, I did a total rewatch during the pandemic, early pandemic, which has led me here with the ability to, to offer you my show makase of always sunny in Philadelphia.
2: Oh yeah. Lay it on me.
1: Okay. So I, this is perhaps controversial. My first episode comes from season four. There's good stuff in those early seasons, but I'm starting with season four with The Nightman Cometh, a very iconic musical theater themed episode where they managed to do that in a way that is like ridiculous and stupid and offensive and dark, but also like not just kitschy enough without being too kitschy. So we're starting off with the kind of very special episode vibe of a a musical theater themed performance, The Nightman Cometh.
2: Gotta pay the troll toll.
1: Exactly. (laughs) then from season five, we do The Waitress is Getting Married, which is the episode where they set up an online dating profile for Charlie. One of the lines that really stuck in my head from that is they tell him to say he's a philanthropist because he obviously doesn't have a a job he could tell a woman about and he is unfamiliar with the word. He says he's a, a full on rapist because philanthropist is just something totally foreign to him. Great episode. Love that one. So We have that from season five. And then, just a few episodes later, we have Patty's Hub, home of the original kitten mittens. I feel like that's one that's been memed quite a lot, the idea of, of selling mittens for cats. It just, like, hits all the right notes of something that is fundamentally, like, extremely stupid, but it they play it just seriously enough that it's so funny, so gotta have the kitten mittens. And from season six, we have The Gang by the Boat, which is a great one of, like, Kind of, I think you needed one that has the, the zany, high-minded. We're pulling off some hijinks stuff that you know. A lot of these episodes have them doing crazy stuff outside the bar, and I hadn't really yet had one of them just doing something totally wacky like that. So the episode where they try to to buy a boat and fail miserably and end up burning and sinking the whole thing, that one had to be in there. Then we we have just three left. One of them is A Very Sunny Christmas. They've only tried to do a true Christmas episode once and they absolutely nailed it. I think a lot of shows the Christmas episode feels like it's not really of the show, if it makes sense. Like it's clearly shoehorned in of you were trying really hard to do something, you know, on theme because the network told you to or whatever. But their Christmas episode is just so perfect. It involves Danny DeVito, climbing naked out of a couch. I realize if totally someone hasn't seen thing. the show, yeah, this is going to, like, everything I've said I'm sure has sounded absolutely insane.
2: They could have felt free to turn this off at any point.
1: That's true. The people
2: who have stuck around are the people <laughs> who
1: matter. Exactly. So for those who have stuck around, we have two left. From season nine, we have The Gang Saves the Day, which I chose because it's a more ambitious structural episode. It's mm. all, <laughs> of, the gang is in a, like a Wawa and there's a robbery and. Each of them imagines what they would do to save it, and it's just really brilliant the way that you have all of the characters seeing how crazy deluded each of them is in their own specific way, and then the way that their own like imaginary visions of saving the day braid together. I think it shows off really well. It's just a good, funny episode, first of all, but it shows off how like creative the writers can be and how much they do here beyond just like okay, like. Yes, there's so so much like low hanging humor here a lot of this is like playing to the lowest common denominator but it's also really smart and they do some interesting structural things so the gang saves the day from season 9 i thought embody that very well and then to finish it off we have from season 10 charlie work which is the episode that kind of goes through what charlie actually does at the bar which is Like, A, the fact that they waited 10 seasons to do an episode like that is just perfect. That, you know, the fundamental question of like, oh, like, what is Charlie's actual job and what does it look like? That you could go 10 years without wanting to really answer that in depth. And then that you finally do so in a way that is just funny and weird. And it's a very dark episode, like even darker than most of them are. And just really good, smart stuff. So that is my show makase of Always Sunny for anyone looking for that curated experience. Yes.
2: Yes. So if you haven't seen It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, but you want to stick your toe in the water, this is the collection of episodes that Fangraphs officially suggests to you. And I haven't seen a bunch of these, like basically anything from the back half of these I haven't seen. But yeah, like I kind of want to hear you... If I was to to name, let's say, like, a couple characters from the show, could you give, like, a a brief character scouting report on on each of them?
1: Yes.
2: All right. (laughs) Let's Let's start with some of the core players with Dennis, played by Glenn Howerton. Yes. Who's got a great jawline.
1: He does. Very handsome man. Dennis is in a group of people that are all very dark and nihilistic and self-serving. Dennis is, I think, the darkest and the most like overtly sociopathic. He they all work at this bar. He is the brother of D, one of the other main characters, and best friend of of Mac and Charlie, the other two. And um yes, just this is the one who is like all of these characters are terrible people, and Dennis is the most transparently so like very aggressive and terrible with women, super high opinion of himself in a way. A lot of ways that don't match his actual lived experience at all. He is the one that is like, okay, you're swimming in a pool of like dark nihilism here and Dennis is the most obviously the worst.
2: Yeah. As I'm thinking more about all the characters, it is almost like anti-social Looney Tune characters. Yeah. Who Like occupy this show. How about Rickety Cricket?
1: Rickety Cricket is a former friend of, of the central gang here who has just, all sorts of misfortunes have befallen him. He is homeless for much of the show, struggling with all sorts of things. He is generally in a, a bad place, but he means well.
2: How about uh, the McPoyles? Last one.
1: <gasps> the McPoyles are his side character of a, like a family that the, the gang knows who are just, deeply weird like if we were previously talking about like you said like antisocial looney tunes the mcpoils aren't dark in that sense they are just weird weird people Family is incestuous and strange and they make everyone uncomfortable. They drink a lot of milk.
2: Yeah, straight up drinking milk, wearing bathrobes in public.
1: Yeah. I mean, that really covers it. I should have just said they drink milk and wear bathrobes.
2: <laughs> I think that would have done it better than these anything tweez, few of them <laughs> could, could use a tweezer. Yep. But yes. Okay. Wonderful. I'm excited to, to put these on because episodic TV is not often a thing that makes its way into the Fangraph's Desert Compound television schedule. It is a lot of sports and then my version of, you know, late night TV consumption is like I'm watching people play Magic the Gathering, mm. I'm watching baseball games from the 1980s, or lately I've been watching like YouTube videos about geography and like how things have come to be the, the way they are in terms of like map drawing and weather patterns and stuff like that. But yeah, I need that whatever that lo-fi drip is before bed. I need that too. It's not Frasier for me, but okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Folks should go to Sports Illustrated to read Emma's stuff. Do you have anything else you want to plug before we split?
1: I, I don't think so. I mean, my favorite always sunny episodes and minor leaguers unionizing. I, I don't know what else I could have given the
2: people. So thank you for the opportunity. Oh, I'm so happy to to give it to, to you and, and anyone else who will come on the show. I'm sure that this will be a thing that I continue to try to do, especially when my segment might be the only segment in a given episode and we only have like playoff baseball there's only so much of it going on you know what i mean like you can't talk about a whole league's worth of stuff so yeah i think that the show thing might be a consistent through line for for guests from here on out so for emma bachelary i've been eric longenhagen thanks to dylan higgins for producing talk to you again soon listeners
0: This has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you to Emma Bachelary for joining us. And if this producer can add a personal favorite episode recommendation, it would be Season 3, Episode 3, The Gang Gets Held Hostage. We hope you enjoyed this episode with Eric and Emma, and if so, consider sharing it with a friend or two. It helps us out. Have you downloaded the Fangraphs app yet? Available now on the Apple Store or Google Play, it's the best way to keep Fangraphs in your pocket on the go. And of course, don't forget to sign up for the Fangraphs newsletter, free to your inbox. It is the best way to keep up on everything we have going on at the site. That will do it for us this week. Be excellent to each other, and we'll talk to you next time.